Right, okay. Uh, we, we, we come tonight to the, the 12th and last talk in the Demonology series. And, uh, I mean, the series proper, we've finished. But what we're going to have tonight is a summing up. And that basically, I'm going to very quickly go through the salient points of everything that we've covered. Kind of a thumbnail sketch of the whole series, uh, you know, putting it all in, a, you know, in one talk, all right? So it's not going to be especially detailed, but I want to jog our memories, basically, as what we've... Um, actually covered. Now, when we started this series, in the very first talk, we asked one simple question, and it was this. We asked, what does the Bible say about evil spirits or demons? Evil spirits, demons, same thing, all right. Now, the, all the preparing that I did for this series was based on every verse about it in the Bible. So that as I prepared all these talks, I covered for myself every verse in the Bible that in any way pertained to the subject. Now, actually, in the talks, uh, we've actually covered 50% of the verses in the Old Testament about it, and we have covered every verse in the New Testament. And that illustrates um, well, I suppose first it illustrates how thorough I am, but what it mainly illustrates is the fact that the answer to the question, what does the Bible say about demons, boils down to the answer that I gave in the first talk, and it was this, not very much at all. Um, and that today, when you read books and hear teaching about demons in the Christian church today, uh, you'd think that the Bible said masses and masses and masses, because, of course, so many people uh, are teaching information about demons and stuff like that that they certainly didn't get from the Bible. We've gleaned what the Bible says and no more. Now, therefore, given that the Bible doesn't say that much about it, okay, how come we've had 12 talks? Because if the Bible doesn't say that much, how on earth do you get 12 talks out of it? Well, the reason for that, that it's been a fairly long series, is of course because of all the false teaching that is going around. Uh, obviously, if you're teaching a subject from the Bible, if there's false teaching around, you've got to address and correct that as well. Uh, so basically, I reckon that let's, let's say there was no false teaching about demons around, all right, and that one was just doing a series on demons and what the Bible says about them without having to counter false teaching, then I reckon that all in all five studies would have sufficed. Uh, that would have been about all you needed. But the reason I've expanded it so much is because every area uh, that you touch on, you've got to actually deal uh, with the false teaching uh, that's, that's around. And, and you remember I said that the problem lies uh, in regards to this false teaching with the fact that Christians are, are influenced by demonologies uh, which come not from the Bible alone. I mean, what I've sought to do in this series is to answer what does the Bible say about it? But so much of the teaching uh, that you get today in churches about demons comes in fact from a combination of the Word of God, uh, false premises and assumptions, subjective experience, and even from what demons themselves have said. Um, and kind of the false premises 
come from the latter two, i.e. that people put a lot of emphasis, not on the word of God alone, but on their own subjective experience of demons. Uh, and even what demons have said to them when they've been casting them out. And so you get false assumptions that come from subjective experience and what demons say, and then what happens is they read that back into the Word of God. Now that is exactly the wrong way round, alright? We take our information from the Bible and the Bible alone. Now, yeah, personal experience can be used to illustrate what the Bible says, of course. But as long as that personal experience is subjected to what the Bible actually teaches, all right? And, uh, and of course, the thing, you know, about listening to evil spirits, I mean, I'm sure that everyone here in this fellowship will say, what, you mean that, you know, that, that Bible teachers, what, they take notice of what evil spirits say, do they? And you're probably amazed at that, but in fact they do, as I'm going to prove to you uh, right now. You remember uh, back in the early talks I was covering the fact that, that the man largely responsible for current demonology on the Christian scene was Derek Prince. And, uh, you know, that most of the Bible teachers around today follow his lead. And we saw that one of them was Bill Sabritsky. He's kind of like the big man of, of the moment in regards to this subject. And I just want to give you some uh, quil uh, some quilts. <laughs> some, some, some quotes. <laughs> yeah, just, just some quotes uh, from one of his books. It's called Demons Defeated, all right. And uh, I've got three quotes, which I think are all rather worth listening to. Now, here's, here's the first one. Listen to this. Now, bear in mind, you obviously can see the folly of taking any notice of what evil spirits say when you're casting them out. Listen to this. This is Bill Sabritsky. The navel is often an entry point for demon powers, which have come down... <laughs> which have come down through the umbilical cord before birth or at birth. Demons have told me that they have entered through the seed of the male into the female and then down through the umbilical cord into the person to, who I am, am, to whom I am ministering. Now, there, there's an example of the sort of stuff you're up against. So, obviously, what we have here um, you know, is that, I mean, obviously this guy, he casts demons out of people. Now, obviously there are times when demons speak, all right. But clearly what we have here is that he's been told certain things by various demons. Oh, I came in through the umbilical cord, all right. Now, he obviously <laughs> accepts this as being true. He believes them. And I put to you, demons will say anything if they think they've got a chance of being believed. So there's, there's quote one. Now, uh, we, we spent quite a bit of time on, you know, sort of like what does the Bible say about the mechanics of casting demons out, and I'll be saying a bit more about that later, but listen to this, alright? Bill Sabritsky again, I often commend people to sharply inhale and believe they are breathing in the Holy Spirit, and then breathe out or expel the demon power within them, alright? Uh, but then on the other hand, why not shove a vacu vacuum cleaner down their throat and hoover the thing out? You know, can you see? So, so what one of the things that he's open to being led to do, all right, here's someone with a demon, and he's saying, right, okay, what I want you to do is, is breathe out, really, and, and, and believe that the demon's coming out, and then breathe in, and believe that the Holy Spirit is coming into you. You know, I, here's another one. 
this will be a bit more familiar. On various occasions, I have found that when water is blessed and then applied to the person seeking deliverance, there can be a real release from demon power. My answer to that is why not stick a hose pipe up their nose and just flood it out, <laughs> you know. Now, can you see the kind of, you know, sort of thing? And this is from not, not someone who's fringe, some kind of fringe ministry. This guy, Bill Sabritsky, is at, in the mainstream of the modern charismatic movement, all right. Um, he also teaches uh, quite seriously I add, quite seriously, that you can get a demon by touching a dead body. Now, I mean, can you see that, in, that, that, that it's virtually a drop into superstition, isn't it? Uh, you know, because for heaven's sake, if you can get an evil spirit by touching a dead body, I mean, there are certain professions who presumably any churches they go to must be spending their whole time casting the demons out of them that they pick up with their job. Nurses, undertakers, you know, perfectly safe professions. Can you see the, the lapse into what is virtually superstitious nonsense? And the point is this, superstitious nonsense is itself demonic. Superstitious ideas are themselves of demonic origin. And here you have them built into Christian teaching about how to deal with demons. And of course, this sort of stuff, quite frankly, it is nonsense. Uh, it, it is, at the very best, it's unbiblical speculation. At the very worst, it is dangerous. And the answer is, ignore it all. It has, apart from the fact, it's good to be aware of this sort of stuff because you might meet other people from other churches and you can biblically counter it. It's good to know about it, but outside of that, it's best ignored completely. All right. So, so let's move on then. In this series, what is it that we have actually seen from the Bible? Okay, and basically this is a massive long list, but you'll, you'll soon get the feel of it. This is it in a nutshell, all right. Uh, we saw that demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits, that's three intercha interchangeable terms for the same thing. Demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits are angels. They are the third who rebelled against God under the leadership of Satan, who was um, the number one angel. And uh, they exist and they work under the authority of Satan himself. So they are the one-third of the fallen angels, the fallen angels who rebelled against God. And that was way back before God created the universe or anything, back before the beginning of time. And we saw that these fallen angels, remember they hate God, they're working against the Lord, all right, they're working against, whatever the Lord wants, they don't want, and they're working against it. And we saw that they operate in one of two ways, all right. First of all, we saw that there are the fallen angels who are on what I called personal demonization detachment, all right. Their brief, the way they operate, is they get inside people and they demonize them, all right? 
So, number one is that some of these beings, these fallen angels, the way they work is that they actually infiltrate, they get inside people, and you then have what the Bible calls a case of demonization. A fallen angel actually inside you trying to affect you. And then we saw that the others work far more generally from the outside, okay? And, uh, the ones that work from the outside, they're not in people, but the one who affect people from the outside, they are called variously in the Bible, principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, all right? So, so they're various biblical names uh, for the ones whose brief is to not get inside people, but the ones who work from the outside, and we'll see a little bit more of that later. Uh, now, we dealt with, first of all, personal demonization, didn't we? The uh, the demons who are on personal demonization detachment, okay, they can actually get inside a person if an entry point is available, all right? So there are some people and they have evil spirits within them. They are, as the Bible calls them, demonized. Now, we saw that the entry point uh, could be anything from specific sin through to the fact that children can have evil spirits. And there are instances in the Bible of uh, children having evil spirits cast out of them. So really what that tells us, we saw certainly that specific sin can, may be an entry point for a demon. But one of the things that we saw was that by and large, demons entering into people, there's a whole area of absolute mystery about it that the Bible doesn't even try to address. We know that specific sin can let demons in, but if one is answering why is it, what enables demons to get in, then that question cannot be answered totally from the Bible. The simple fact we saw that children can have evil spirits. And so, therefore, though the entry point can be sin, it can be other things that the Bible doesn't actually say anything about at all. Now, we moved on, and we dealt with uh, this thing about, is possession a biblical idea? And uh, you find common language amongst Christians, they talk about being possessed by evil spirits. And the reason for that is that uh, the King James Version, I believe, um, you know, sort of like in its language, it spoke about people who were possessed. Now, we actually went into that and we saw that the idea of being possessed by an evil spirit is completely misleading and is not biblical at all. And we saw that the reason for that is the word possession, uh, it suggests a complete control um, along with the overriding of the victim's free will. Okay. Um, and we saw quite clearly that demons, even when they are indwelling someone, even when demon or demons or a demon is inside of someone, demons can never override someone's free will. Uh, we saw that they can certainly act as an amplifier. You know, I mean, back to the picture I gave you with Hi-Fi, you've got a record deck and you've got an amplifier, all right? Now, the point is the record deck puts out a signal. The amplifier increases that signal. Now, a demon can act like an amplifier, but the point is it's the sinful nature of the person that provides it with the signal. I mean, if you've got someone who really has resentment in their hearts, now let's say they end up in a demonized state. 
Now, it's very possible that they'll end up being even more resentful as, as a result of having a demon. But the point is, that is merely their sin being amplified by the presence of an evil spirit. The original sin is purely the person's who's resentful. And you remember I said that when it comes to evil spirits, think Bible, not Hollywood. Uh, you know, because of course Hollywood has made millions out of films, um, you know, about evil spirits possessing people, you know, get the, the kind of the mad axeman type, don't you? Totally out of control, you know, like the devil in them and everything they do is merely what the devil inside them wants to do. That is not true at all, and the idea using the word possessed of evil spirits is something that in the Greek the Bible never does and with the old King James Version every time it talks about being possessed it's a translation of the word daimonosi which simply means to be demonized and uh, in the Greek the idea of being possessed is never ever ever used in regards to um, evil spirits. So the Bible simply says that if you've got an evil spirit, you are demonized to whatever extent. So we threw out the idea of being possessed, all right, and uh, got our first glimpse when we covered that, that the real problem is never evil spirits. The problem is always sin, all right. Now then, we then went on to ask the question, do demons have names? And uh, we asked that question and we had to answer it for the simple reason that the demonology that's most popular in the church today is demons of this, that and the other, hatred, lust, murder, you name it, there's a demon with that name. Now, what we saw is that demons may or may not have personal names. We couldn't answer that question. Um, we know they're angels and we certainly saw uh, that of the goody angels, one of them is called Michael, and one of the other goody angels is called uh, Gabriel. Now, Satan, who's a baddie angel, was originally called Lucifer, which means light bearer, and is now called Satan, which means the adversary. He had a change of name. But, that well, therefore, if some of the goody angels have personal names, Michael, Gabriel, and if Satan has a personal name, it could well be that all the fallen angels have a personal name. But here's the point, such names, apart from the ones I've mentioned, are never revealed in the Bible. Therefore, the question, do demons have names, is irrelevant to us. The Bible basically doesn't really tell us. But what you do get today is the idea that evil spirits have names and their name represents some specific sin or disorder which they are causing in whoever it is they are indwelling, all right? And we saw that that was completely unbiblical. We went through the entire Bible, every verse in the New Testament, for instance, Acts of the Apostles, four Gospels, etc., etc., and we did not see that anywhere. And today, the common practice is that you find that Christians say that if someone's got a demon, then what you have to do is establish what the demon's name is. You know, is, it, is it lust? Is it uh, murder? Is it resentment? Is it hate? Is it, you know, we saw some really weird names, didn't we? And uh, that you have to establish what its name was, and then once you know what its name was, you cast it out in the name of Jesus, referring to it by its own name. Now, we saw that that was completely unbiblical. <coughs> that was, in fact, the method that the Pharisees used. Under Pharisaic Judaism, that was a formula that Israel had been taught at the time of Jesus. But we saw that Jesus never, ever 
cast demons out in that particular way and neither did the early church so that was a pharisaic teaching there's nothing in the bible to suggest it was true in fact quite the contrary we saw every instance of the casting out of demons in the bible and you certainly didn't find any of that um, and what we did see throughout is that the bible totally discouraged any two-way conversation with demons whatsoever. I mean, if only from the quotes from that book, Demons Defeated, you can see that that guy, he has long conversations with demons when he's casting them out, doesn't he? Because look at the sort of information that he thinks he's picked up from them. We saw in the New Testament there is nothing to encourage that whatsoever, all right? You do not have two-way conversation with demons when you cast them out. You have one-way conversation. You command them to leave in the name of Jesus and totally ignore anything that they might say. The reason being, demons tell lies. Not necessarily all the time, but when you know that someone or something, you know, be it a personal, be it an, a, an angel, if you've got a person who you know tells lies, then the point is, there's no point in believing anything they say because you can never know whether it's true or not. And it's exactly the same for evil spirits. If it suits an evil spirit to tell the truth, it will tell the truth. If it suits an evil spirit to lie, it will lie. And there is no way that we could ever know whether it was telling the truth or whether it was lying. So you do not find two-way conversations in the Bible with evil spirits. Simply believers casting them out, addressing them, but not taking any notice of what the demons may say back. So therefore, you know, no two-way conversations with demons. Ignore anything they say to you, all right? Just get on with casting them out in the name of Jesus. Now, we moved on, didn't we, and we asked about um, how do you know when someone is demonised, all right? And we saw two categories, didn't we? Do you remember we saw obvious demonization, and then we went on to see non-obvious demonization. And uh, the surprise was when we answered the question, what constitutes obvious demonization? And do you remember we saw quite simply that you can only conclude demonization to be obvious, i.e. not needing to discern it, when you have phenomena which is occurring, which can only be explained by the fact that the supernatural is at work, and that this supernatural is not the working of God. I mean, for instance, if someone can levitate, you know, float up to the ceiling, you there have obvious demonization. Because, of course, the Holy Spirit doesn't float people up to the ceiling for fun, does he? You see? Uh, you know, so there, there are various occultic things, all right? When you obviously, you have something that can only be explained on the basis that it is clearly supernatural and not the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, in a case like that, and only that, you can say, here is an absolutely obvious case of demonization. And do you remember, in the entire New Testament, we only found one, didn't we? I'm talking about a situation where someone had demons cast out of them, and it was obvious, and it was the gathering demoniac. He was the only instance of what you would call obvious demonization. And even though he was ranting and raving and cutting himself and things like that, the giveaway was one fact. 
and it was that he could break chains. The presence of supernatural strength. So that was a clear case of demonization. No discernment needed. But outside of something like that, there are no symptoms of demonization. And this is important because a lot of these books that you get, a lot of the Bible teachers who talk about it, they'll give you lists of things that if you see this in people, then it means they've got a demon. They'll say, for instance, uh, compulsive behavior. This is, you know, a sure sign of the presence of a demon. Well, that is absolutely crazy because the sinful nature is compulsive. Can you see? And what we saw is that there are no symptoms which definitely diagnose it, all right? Because any one thing that might think, ah, oh, that could be an evil spirit that's causing that or something, what we've seen is that the sinful nature can alone be like that without any need for the presence of demons. I mean, if someone's got a real, say, jealousy problem, now then, someone might be very jealous, and indeed, they may pick up a demon, and that demon amplifies their jealousy. But, if you met someone who had a real severe jealousy problem, that doesn't guarantee they've got a demon, you can't conclude that, they might just be a very jealous person. Do you see what I mean? So we saw that there are no symptoms through which you can diagnose demonization. And we moved on to the gift, the gift of the spirit that deals with this, the discerning of spirits, all right? And we saw that that gift is available precisely because demonization is very rarely obvious. If the fact that someone had a demon was absolutely obvious, you wouldn't need the gift of the discernment of spirits. And God has given us that gift precisely because the vast majority of cases of people being demonized, it is not in any way at all obvious. It has to be discerned. And you remember that we saw that that gift, the discernment of spirits, um, it's to, to, to show you possibly three things. It's the ability to see whether something is of the Spirit of God, whether it's something God is doing, or whether it's the activity of a demon, or whether it is merely the activity of the human spirit. Do you see what I mean? So, for instance, say that someone is, is, is overcome by fear, fear of the dark or something like that, or someone that's really doing their brains in. Well, something like that is obviously not the spirit of God, all right, because there is no fear in love, perfect love casts out fear, all right? Now then, it could be the activity of a demon inside the person, but again, it might just be their sinful nature. And the discernment of spirits is the ability to eventually to know what the cause of something is. Is it, is it something God's doing? Is it something that a demon's doing? Or is it merely something that people are doing? Merely a result of the fallen human nature. And we saw that there was no ABC. You cannot write a manual for this because the gift of the discerning of spirits is a supernatural revelation that is given by the Holy Spirit himself. And there is no ABC of this at all. We saw that it's trusting the Lord, it's keeping an open mind, and all the time being willing to refer to others for confirmation. All right. So that at any point along the way, you think, right, okay, this really, I'm trying to help someone, yeah, and it really seems that there's, there are demons tied up in this. These people are going to need demons cast out of them. Right, well, go along 
in that direction. But cautiously, sensibly, all the time open to the fact that it might not be. You know, a bit of biblical common sense in regards to it. And uh, then we eventually got to the talk where we said, right, I mean, how do you cast evil spirits out? Let's assume that it's, it's known that someone's got a demon and they want to be set free. How do you go about it? And what, what we saw <coughs> is that when casting out demons, you simply command them to leave in the name of Jesus. It is as simple as that. You command the evil spirits to leave in the name of Jesus. And you do this knowing your utter authority over them because of your submission to the Lord. But what we have to remember is that this authority is delegated authority, not an incantation. Do you remember we, uh, we saw the fact that some Christians, they think that if you kind of just use the name of Jesus, that almost like a magic charm, it works. But we saw that when the Bible talks about, you know, praying, you know, when Jesus said, ask anything in my name or cast out demons in my name, the in my name bit refers to the fact that you're under his authority. A policeman will arrest you in the name of the law, i.e., because he has been authorised by a higher power, the law of the land, to do that. Uh, an out-of-fellowship Christian who's not right with God going around, coming against demons in the name of Jesus, you can do it till the cows come home. You'll get absolutely nowhere. But we saw that the extent of our authority over Satan and demons is directly proportional to the extent of our active submission to Jesus in our day-to-day -day lives. So the point is, we have authority over the devil to the extent that we are living under the authority of God. The authority is not ours, it's a delegated authority. It's been passed down to us by the Lord himself. But, if we're out of fellowship with God, if we're in rebellion to him, if, if, if we've got un unconfessed sin in our lives, then we're no longer under God's authority, are we? The moment, the moment that we've got undealt with sin in our lives, we're not under God's authority, we're in rebellion against him. Therefore, you have no authority over Satan. The moment we're back in fellowship with God, we're under his authority and therefore we have authority over Satan. So uh, it's important not to fall into this kind of what I call incantation approach, chucking the name of Jesus about as if there are supernatural, uh, you know, power in the very words. There isn't supernatural power in words. That is back to superstition. When a Christian comes against a demon in the name of Jesus, the power is that if that person is living in submission to the Lord, then the power of Jesus himself is present with them to kick the evil spirit out. It's not the power of words, it's the power of the Holy Spirit in our own personal lives, all right. So then, when casting out evil spirits, simply command them to leave in the name of Jesus, and uh, knowing that they're going to, and that they have to, because if you're in submission to Jesus, then his delegated authority given to you means that that demon has got to be in submission to you. And uh, I think I probably say something along the lines, if you're casting out a demon, 
say it as if you mean it. <laughs> All right. I mean, there's no, no need for yelling and screaming, no need for dramatic, you know, effects. You know, I mean, sort of demons, demons won't leave people because of noise levels, all right, or anything like that. They don't care about the noise, you know. And it's like sort of sometimes, I mean, sort of one can use the right words, but in effect be saying, oh, please, Mr. Demon, I, I was wondering if, if perhaps you'd come out of them because, you know, no, I mean, tell them to get out like you mean it. You know, use the authority that you've got. But having said that, some people, they think that authority equals noise, drama, and pyrotechnics. It doesn't in the slightest, all right? Uh, so often you find that, you know, some people, they'll start casting a demon out, you know, and it's sort of like it's very soft, you know, normal voice, rational, everyone's quite calm. All right, and then you know, sort of maybe an hour later, it's taking a bit of time, and you'll find sleeves rolled up, perspiration pouring from them. They're all going hoarse because they've been yelling and screaming at this thing. No, 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 quiet persistence. All right, you are commanding a demon to leave in the name of Jesus. Stand your ground, it will just go as the Lord leads you. All right. Now then, in regards to casting demons out, you remember we saw that there is nothing at all in the Bible to suggest we send them anywhere. Uh, you'll find some Christians that they'll, they'll actually send them to Tartarus. Uh, you know, we saw that that was a bit silly. Um, some people, you know, just, just kind of, you know, like, you know, they'll cast them out and they'll say, go where the Lord sends you. Well, I mean, okay, fair enough. But there's nothing in the Bible that suggests you say, you, you just merely kick them out. And, uh, and we saw from the teaching of Jesus that when a demon comes out anyway, and does it or does it not go into orbit, I leave you with that one, you've got to keep, keep debating that, but we saw definitely that when a demon does lead someone and goes through this mysterious waterless places, which I located as being, uh, you know, just outside the atmosphere of the planet, that's my guess, but we saw that that demon will actually return to see if it can get back in. So, you know, I mean, that rather blows any idea of, you know, don't, don't send deep, just kick them out. You know, do you know, I mean, I mean, if you've got someone, you know, sort of say, say you have someone, you know, sort of round for an evening, someone you don't know, all right, they come round, and uh, you're sitting there talking to them, and, uh, you know, they've got, you know, a bottle of whiskey with them, and every five minutes having it, you know, and they're, they're drinking this bottle of whiskey, and I mean, by the end of the evening, they hardly stand up, they're being sick everywhere, they're swearing at you, they're telling dirty jokes, they're totally out of control. What do you do? Kick them out. You're not concerned about where they go, you just want them out of your house, don't you? And it's exactly the same with demons. Don't bother where they go, that's their problem, not ours. Just kick them out, we don't want them there. Um, also, um, because we saw clearly that, 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 that sometimes people can have one demon, sometimes they'll have more than one, a group of demons. Uh, you know, that's no problem. Uh, as you read through the Bible, there are clearly sometimes cases of multiple demonization. Uh, ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, it hardly matters. Uh, I mean, there have been times I've prayed for people and, you know, sort of like come against a demon. I honestly couldn't tell you whether there was one or loads. But assuming they're all gone, what does it matter? You know, can you see what I mean? But there are definitely instances of multiple demonization. And again, we saw uh, that the current teaching today is that when you've got a group of demons in someone, do you remember there'll be a leader of the pack, what's called the leader of the pack. And he's the big chief demon in there, all right? And you have to find him. 
You have to find him, because the others, you can try and kick the others out, but they'll tell you that they can't go without his authority, you see. So as long as he's staying, they're going to stay. I'll give you straight Bill Sabritsky teaching here. All right, so what you've got to do, you've got to get to the leader of the pack, deal with him, and then the others will come out as well. Now, in cases of multiple demonization, nothing like that at all, okay? You know, I mean, just, just, just kick them all out. If there's one, kick it out. If, if, if there's more than one, kick them out. Can you see? Just kick them out in the name of Jesus as, as, as God leads. Now then, holy water, you know, sprinkle, sprinkle. Um, incidentally, the idea of holy water, just so you've got the idea, well, of course, this doesn't come from the Bible. You know, this, this, this comes from church tradition. The idea of holy water, okay, is that if you have water that has been blessed by a priest, right, the water via the ministry of the priest is endued with God's power, all right? If that water touches the body of someone who's got demons, the demons have to leave. Uh, get your back to superstitious rubbish. The, the, the idea of using holy water to cast demons out is itself demonic, okay? So use of holy water, stuff like that, out, rubbish, you know, don't touch it at all. Uh, we saw the breathing in and out, you know, <gasps> breathe in the Holy Spirit, breathe out the demons. Uh, again, dangerous. Um, you'll find, not just in regards to the casting out of demons, but when you get these Christians who do these psychological inner healing ministries on people, all right, you know, and again, they'll use this deep breathing thing, and they'll say, um, you know, sort of like here, they think they're dealing not with demons, but with anxieties and things like that, and they'll say, breathe in the Holy Spirit and then breathe out the anxiety or breathe out the problem, whatever it is. Now, in actual fact, what happens if you breathe very deeply and very slowly, so really long deep breaths in and then really long deep breaths out and then keep that up, after a little while, what happens is uh, that you get far more oxygen in your bloodstream than you would under normal breathing conditions. Now, too much oxygen in the bloodstream makes you lightheaded. And you'll find that a lot of, uh, you know, the meditation sects, you know, this, this deep breathing is one of the first exercises you ever... You, I mean, you, you might quite frankly have, a, you know, a couple of good mouthfuls of a strong brandy or something. It has an intoxicating effect. So all things like that, I mean, they're, they're, they're nonsense. They're, they're not in the slightest bit what the Bible says. And as far as we're concerned, uh, they're absolutely out. So holy water, deep breathing, it's, it's all a dangerous um, nonsense. Um, now, one thing we did see, uh, we saw uh, at least one occasion when uh, somebody came to Jesus uh, because someone somewhere else had a demon and Jesus kind of cast the demon out at a distance. Uh, so therefore, I mean, I mean it's not that he yelled with a very loud voice so that the person miles away heard it, but the point is there can be deliverance um, even when the person who's demonized isn't actually present. 
Uh, so there's biblical precedent for that, so we must be open to that. Obviously, obviously, it can only be as the Holy Spirit is leading. I mean, obviously, say say someone came here and said, well, look, you know, actually, I've been to see my auntie Frieda today. She lives in Hatfield, all right, and I'm sure she's demonised. Could we just cast this demon out of her now? I mean, obviously, that would be silly, wouldn't it? You know, I mean, you could do daft things, but we, it's there in the Bible, and certainly we can be open to the Holy Spirit leading um, in, in that kind of, um, of a way. Um, but one thing you will find in Christian circles, whether it's for demonization or whether it's for healing, um, you're, you're in some circles hear about, they call it proxy healing or proxy deliverance. Now, the idea of this uh, is that if you've got, say, a group of Christians praying, all right, now, say someone present was sick, they say, would you lay hands on me? No problem. Or say if someone there was demonised, you know, you, you cast a demon out of them. Now, this proxy business, all right, what happens is that you've got someone somewhere else who needs ministry, and someone who knows them will kind of stand in and you lay hands on them or minister to them, and they stand in by proxy. Now, the idea of praying for someone who's somewhere else is apt, no problem with that at all. But this idea of actually laying hands on a proxy, you won't find that in the Bible for anything at all. I mean, it's not only that you won't find it for demons, you won't find it for healing, you won't find it there at all. It's just one of these silly little practices that has come up in the charismatic movement. But the president praying for people who are not present, that idea is okay. No problem with that, as the Lord leads. But the idea of actually, you know, say, you know, say um, Eve had had a phone call from a friend in Nottingham, <coughs> Who, who had flu or something and said, well, look, you know, can you all pray for me tonight that the Lord will heal me? That would be fine. But if Eve then said, right, okay, will you lay hands on me? You know, so we all laid hands on Eve, who's standing in for a friend in Nottingham. I mean, it's a very standard practice in the charismatic movement, be it for healing or deliverance, but not, not however, a biblical one. Okay, so there's just, just, just something else to be laid uh, to one side, all right? Now, remember, we're sort of dealing here with the personal demonization. We saw as well, there is nothing in the Bible whatsoever to suggest that everyone is demonized. Uh, I remember one guy I used to know up in Suffolk, he, he was a leader of a church up there, and uh, I remember chatting with him once, and he said to me, and he was absolutely, you know, I, I mean, he totally believed it, so I thought, what a funny thing to say. And, uh, but he, 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 he said that everyone, everyone in the world has, on average, 12 demons. You know, and he really believed it. And of course, it's this idea that behind every sin lurks an evil spirit. You know, we're back to the, you know. Uh, but there is nothing in the Bible whatsoever to suggest that everyone is demonized. Uh, we didn't look at it at the time, but the other day I was reading the Bible, and you get the, um, in the Acts of the Apostles, you get the story of Simon Magus. Now, he was an occultist, all right? Acts chapter 8, I think it is. Now, he was actually an occultist, and he became a Christian. He was born again, he was baptised. Now, when he saw the apostles laying hands on people when they were filled with the Spirit, he offered to buy the power, you know, and Peter really put him in his place, all right. So, you have the story of Simon Magus getting converted, getting baptised, and then getting a bit of sorting out, all right. No mention whatsoever of him having demons cast out of him. And he was an occultist, can you see? 
So the idea of everyone being demonized is not a biblical one at all. In fact, quite the contrary. When you go through the Bible, it becomes quite clear that personal demonization is statistically the exception, not the norm. Now that still leaves loads of people out there demonized. You've only got to read through the Gospels, through the Acts of the Apostles. Everywhere they went, there were people who needed to be set free from demons. But the point is, the vast majority of people they met didn't need that. They just needed to be saved. But there were still people who needed demons cast out. But those people were always in the minority. And we saw that the emphasis throughout the Bible is on the sinfulness of the human heart. The emphasis is not on demons at all, all right. Now then, we've certainly seen that children can have evil spirits. And you'll remember we saw the story of the woman who was a Christian, uh, who'd been all bent up for 18 years, and Jesus cast the demon out of her. Now there's no mention that that was because of any specific sin in her. So there are exceptions. But what we saw in general is that the real problem, even when someone has got demons, the real problem is not the demon at all. It's the sin that enabled it to get in. And what we saw is that if demons are like coats in the wardrobe of your life, it's the sinful nature that is the coat hanger that they're hanging on. And even when someone does have demons, all right, the real problem isn't the jacket, it's not the demon, it's it's the coat hanger, it's the sin. And that when the sin is dealt with, well, well, there's nothing there for the demon to hang on to. And so you just kind of boot it out. And, you know, I mean, often they'll just go anyway. You know, not all demons need booting out. Many do, but some of them, they'll, they'll just go. When the repentance has happened, the demons will just go. And uh, so we saw that when it comes to being set free from evil spirits, that when it's revealed that someone has got a demon, then the key to them being set free is in actual fact repentance and submission to the Lord. That is the key. If the person doesn't, very possibly fine, the demon won't come out. Or maybe it will, but it'll be back next week. Throwing the coat hanger out is always the important part in all this. Right, okay, so that was um, personal demonization. Right, now then, having covered that, like the first half, we, we moved on to, to, to what I called, you know, taking a peek behind the cosmic curtain. And we moved on to what the Bible calls principalities and powers, i.e. the second group of the fallen angels. Group number one, personal demonization inside you. But the principalities and powers, slightly different. Now, these fallen angels, far, uh, not influencing people from the inside, but they influence mankind in a far more general sense, but from the outside, all right? So we have here demonic influence, not through demons inside people, but here we have demonic influence, but from the outside, all right? Now then, these principalities and powers, and remember Satan himself, who's the big weak, he comes in this category, all right? Um, you know, you're there was one point when Satan definitely did enter somebody, uh, because do you remember, you know, we saw Judas? 
Now, when Judas betrayed Jesus, it says, and Satan entered him. Now, that's to be expected. Satan made an exception there. Satan doesn't go around demonising people, going inside of them. He's got far better things to do than that. But the reason that it was Satan in Judas is because Judas was, you know, betraying Jesus. That, that was the big exception. But Satan is in this category, the principalities and powers, and he's kind of, um, you know, sort of like the bigwig. And what we saw is that these principalities and powers are the push at back of human history. We saw that it's these demons that are the manipulating power behind the backdrop of human affairs. And remember we saw, for instance, I mean it's like, um, I mean sort of socialism is the push behind the Guardian. Um, you know the Conservative Party is the push behind the Times. That, it's that kind of idea. The push behind human affairs are these demonic beings, alright. And we saw that the way they work, or their modus operandi, is simply this. Wrong thinking, sinful ideas, and straightforward temptation to sin. And that is how they work. And we saw that the power that they can exercise lies simply in this. <clears throat> the, the human heart the average human being, all right, the human sinful nature is in rebellion against God in exactly the same way that the principalities and powers are in rebellion against God. And that what we saw is there is an absolute oneness between the nature of a fallen angel and the nature of a fallen human being. So therefore, People who don't want to follow the Lord, and indeed, our sinful natures, we do want to follow the Lord, but the sinful nature is still there all the time, kicking back. Our sinful natures are exactly the same as the nature of these evil spirits. And so, therefore, because of that, humanity is manipulable by them, i.e., because there are so many things uh, in situations where human beings want the same as the evil spirits. And as soon as you get in a situation where what you want is the same as what Satan wants, I mean, what you want might be for totally different reasons than Satan, but where your desires coincide with Satan's desires, you then render yourself manipulable by them by him and by all the principalities and powers. And so what we've seen is that entire human history is the manipulation of the human race against God by the principalities and powers. And we saw that these evil spirits, all right, the principalities and powers one, that they're all around us and that they live literally in the atmosphere of planet Earth. We are surrounded by them. Now, obviously, one might be tempted to say, how many are there per square mile? We can't answer that. The Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe there's one every square hundred miles. Maybe there's ten every square half a mile. We do not know. They're invisible. You can't pick them up on radar. They don't cast shadows. You know, we've got no way of knowing. But what we do know is that they are there, and what we do know is that they are literally in the atmosphere that we are breathing. 
And you remember that we went through one of the chapters in the book of Daniel and we learned certain things about them. Now you remember I said that you can get books on demonology today written by various people who are Christians and they will give you the most amazingly detailed information about these principalities and powers, 90% of which doesn't come from the Bible. But we went through and we, we gleaned as much as it was safe to do so. And particularly from the book of Daniel we, we ascertained three things. Firstly, these principalities and powers, these fallen angels, they're spread out in an organised way over communities and countries of the world, alright? You'll remember we saw that ancient Persia and Greece each had one such baddie angel influencing their nations. So the push behind ancient Persia and the push behind ancient Greece were their respective baddie principalities and powers. Now, given that Paul's teaching, which is to Christians in all places and at all times, uh, Paul states quite clearly that our battle isn't with flesh and blood, but with these principalities and powers. On that basis, we can assume quite biblically that what was true in the day of Daniel remains true of today. Behind nations lies a baddie principality. Now, indeed, there might be one major one, and uh, sort of like with a few thousand other ones working under him, spread out, you know, across counties or whatever. Who knows? But we can certainly establish that behind countries there is a bad, you know, that each country has a baddie principality working to influence that nation against God. All right? And so what we can say is that from globally to locally, from the world scene down to what's happening with your next door neighbours, alright, it's these baddie angels that we're at war with. It's these baddie angels that are the push behind what's going on. Whether it's the entire global affairs of humanity down to what's happening in, in, in your next door neighbour's house, alright, and it's them, they're the push behind it, these demons are the ones uh, who we are at war with, all right? So that was the first thing. Secondly, we saw that Israel, at least, had a goody angel all of its own. So there were these countries coming against Israel with the baddie angels behind them, but Israel had a goody angel all of its own, uh, the archangel Michael. Now, in Hebrews 1, verse 14, the writer says this, Angels are ministering spirits sent forth to serve for the sake of those who are to obtain salvation. Now, in view of that, the goody angels, they're there to serve humanity. They are there to serve people who are going to become Christians and then to keep serving them once they are Christians. Now then, given that, it may well be the case that for every locality that has a baddie, principality, that there's a goody one as well. So it may well be the case that, for instance, every country has a goody principality trying to influence it against God, but it also has a goody angel trying to influence it for God. That may well be the case, okay. But beyond that, we can't go. 
you can buy books with intricate listings of the principalities and powers, you know, and sort of like, you know, sort of like all the various ranks, and you have to start praying through the bottom ones at the ladder and work your way up until you get to the biggie. Now, I mean, all this is going way beyond what the Bible says. It's, it's, it's just pure speculation, and therefore, because it's speculation not based on what the Bible says, it's of no interest to us. So that was the second thing we see. There are goody angels working over nations as well to counter what the baddie angels are doing. But the third thing we saw from Daniel was this, that it was Daniel's praying that countered what the baddie angel was doing and enabled the goody angel to win. So that really started to sort of show us something about what spiritual warfare is all about for us. So then, let's, let's, let's just... What does our warfare boil down to then, okay? We are called to be at war with the principalities and powers, all right? What does it boil down to? Right, well, we saw that the demons on personal demonization detachment, they're in people, they need casting out, all right? But with principalities and powers, it's different. They're not in people. No use casting them out, because they're not in there. What they do is they manipulate and deceive people, creating what the Bible calls strongholds or what I called a holding power, rather like the walls of Jericho. Do you remember we saw Jericho? God promised Jericho to Israel, but Israel couldn't get to Jericho because there were walls around the city. And what happens is that these principalities and powers work like that. They put strongholds in the minds of people which prevent God's truth and what God is doing getting through to them. And the Bible says that with these strongholds they need pulling down, or as the Greek word is, demolishing, all right. And what it boils down to is this. When something is revealed, be it to any one of us individually or as corporately, all right, when something is revealed as being God's will, then it's ours. The mere fact it's been revealed to us means that it's ours, all right. But whatever it is, it has to be taken from the God of this world. You see the point? Whatever God has revealed, that's ours. But Satan's holding it. And it's got to be released from his power into our hands. And uh, do you remember that one of the things uh, we saw was that when Israel went into the Promised Land, God said, two things to them. He says, I have given the promised land to you. It's yours, alright? I've already given it to you. But he said, every, every, every bit of land that you put your foot down on, I will give you. Can you see, the point was, Canaan belonged to Israel, but it was inhabited by the Canaanites. In order for Israel to actually get what God had promised them, Canaan, they had to systematically take it away from the Canaanites and drive out the people who were already in the land. And that was the picture. We, individually, are moving into, as it were, the promised land. That which God has for us as his children. Be it people who need converting, be it gifts of the Spirit, be it more and more holiness and sanctification in our own lives. That is what God has for us. But inch by inch, it has to be taken from the evil one. 
the strongholds of Satan has to be broken down. The walls of Jericho must come down first. The Canaanites must be removed from, from a bit of land before you can actually take it. And for us, that warfare is prayer. And what we saw was that prayer had three aspects. I called it a tri you know, a, a mode of triangularity or some such, all right? And what we saw is that prayer, firstly, is to the Lord. Secondly, it's for something. But thirdly, it's against the principalities and the powers. Um, say, take it in regards to us as a church, the vision that God has placed before us as a church. Now, obviously, it boils down to what the Bible teaches about a church. But the Lord has made it specific, you know, a candle, and God's going to light it, and the other candles will take their light from the candle here, all right, that God is building or moulding. Now then, there's the vision, that is the future God has given to us. Now then, <clears throat> we need to pray. We pray to the Lord. We pray for the fulfilment of the vision. But we must also pray against what Satan is doing, preventing it coming into being. Can you see what I mean? If only because each one of us, I mean, the Christian life is finding out systematically more and more things in us that are in the way. So therefore, even if only because there's always more sin in us to be dealt with, it's always prayer against Satan so that sin can be revealed, so that Satan's power can be broken. It's the same, there are people in this area, they're going to become Christians. But we saw the blindness that Satan's put over them must be broken first. That veil must be removed from them. And that is spiritual warfare. That comes by prayer. Now, obviously, as soon as we start talking that we pray to the Lord for something and against Satan, obviously, with anything like that, uh, an, an, an ABC would help. You know, well, I mean, how do you know what God's will is? Blah, blah, blah. It would be lovely to have an ABC of it all. But, of course, um, that cannot be. Because it's the Lord leading us, individually and corporately, day by day. There is no ABC of it. It's trusting the Lord, looking to Him, and just plodding on as faithfully as we possibly can, trusting that the Lord is going to show us whatever we need to know at any one point. All right. Now, this is something that, as a church, we have really started to learn, and we are going to learn more and more and more. The praying of spiritual warfare. I mean, when we started doing this series quite a long time ago, it was clear to me, at any rate, that God wanted us to move into spiritual warfare. It was time for us spiritually to go on the offensive, all right? And spiritual warfare is really on our agenda now as a church, which is marvellous. It's God's time for it. And bit by bit, he's going to keep teaching us. We're, we're learning quite a bit at the moment, you know, with some of the things that have happened in the last few weeks. And spiritual warfare for us is the key to so much. It is the key to the fulfilment of the vision that God has given to us. The praying of spiritual warfare, all right? Our future as a church depends on it completely.
But remember, we saw as well, it wasn't just prayer. I mean, prayer is important, all right? Daniel prayed. But it's not just prayer. We saw that the truth of God's word really applies in this warfare. And for various reasons. It's the truth of God's word that shows us our authority and tells us what we can pray for. But also remember that the main way that the principalities and powers work in people's minds is by deception and deceit and lies. Now what is the word of God? The truth. Therefore, the Word of God must always be there. It's the sword of the Spirit. It must never leave us, because constantly getting to know the truth of the Word of God more and more and more will enable us to defend ourselves against demonic deception. And believe me, when a church starts moving into spiritual warfare to fulfill the vision God has given it, when a church does that faithfully with God leading it, then, you know, I mean, believe me, all the stops are pulled out by Satan and the principalities and powers to stop that church. And one of the main weapons they're going to use is deception be it the deception of false teaching, or be it just the crazy deceptions that individuals can get in their head and end up doing their own thing. Whatever it is, all right, Satan will try and deceive. So therefore, the Word of God is vitally important. We must stay pure from false teaching. And also, not just that, we must stay pure, as pure as we can, from deception in any form. And the more you take in the Word of God, the more your mind is being transformed and renewed so that your thinking becomes less and less deceitful. Can you see what I mean? Our hearts are deceitful and we must be people of truth in every area of life. So we have prayer, but also we have the truth of God's Word. And not just believing the truth, but living the truth. Because if you live the truth, Satan will not be able to get the foothold he wants. So the Word of God is vitally important with our ongoing obedience and faithfulness to it. And one of the reasons why we must not budge an inch from what we know to be the revealed Word of God is that the moment you do, you're on the slippery slope of demonic deception. So therefore we've got prayer and we've got the Word of God and we saw the third thing, praise, didn't we? You know, sort of like, for instance, very often in the Old Testament, when they went out to fight a battle, they sent out the singers and the trumpeters first. Praise and worship. All this has a devastating effect on the principalities and powers in whatever locality we're praying in for, whatever locality we're worshipping in, and whatever locality we're living faithfully to the Word of God in. So, prayer obedience and faithfulness to the word of God and praise. And by and large, when it comes to spiritual warfare, there you have it. But what I want to actually round up this series on, all right, is to ask a question. Uh, now, some of you might think it's an odd question, but believe me, it's not, because a lot of Christians really suffer from this. And I want to ask the question, does all, I mean, all you know about spiritual warfare now and demons, does it frighten you? 
Does it make you frightened of Satan? Now I hope no one here is frightened of Satan, but sadly a lot of Christians are. I mean, I've actually experienced Christians being frightened of me when they realised that I came from the occult and had evil spirits cast out of me. I've experienced, too, Christians who, when they know that I've cast demons out of other people, they're frightened. And that, you know, I mean, Satan is never happier than when he's got believers frightened of him. All right. Now, just, just go to Joshua, because I want to show you something. Uh, we, we saw quite a bit the picture of coming into the Promised Land being a picture of, of spiritual warfare. And um, go to Joshua chapter 2. And I'm just going to read verse 9 to 11. Now, the actual, the actual thing that's going on here is that Israel have come over Jordan. So they're just starting to take the Promised Land. They've come over the river, they are in the Promised Land. And their campaign, and the first battle of their campaign was Jericho, their campaign to take the entire Promised Land is just about to start, all right? Now, what happens is some spies are sent in to, you know, and they infiltrate Jericho. All right, so, so Israel knows that God is going to give it Jericho. So they send some spies in, and these spies come back with some news. Now, this is Joshua 2 and verse 9, all right? And um, you've got the story of Rahab. Now, this is Rahab talking to the spies. Rahab lived in Jericho, all right? She was a Jerichoite or whatever they called themselves, all right? And these spies, okay, Rahab has found them. She's helping them. She's believed on the Lord. She's got converted, all right? She's become a believer. Now, listen to what she says to the Israeli spies. Before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men... I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea, 40 years previously this was, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Zion and Og, they were giants, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God is he who is God in heaven and above and on the earth beneath. Now, a few days later, the entire Israeli army were going to be surrounding Jericho, you know, with its immense walled cities. There was a real struggle. What chance have we got against Jericho? And a lot of the Israelites, they were scared. The prospect of, even though God was with them, driving back all the Canaanites and everything like that, they were frightened. They knew there were giants in the land, and it was, oh goodness, oh goodness, and there was a bit of fear in their hearts. So then, Jericho, they, they were frightened of Jericho. Now, look, here, the spies, what do they discover? Regardless of how frightened Israel were of the Canaanites, the Canaanites were a lot more frightened of Israel. Because they knew that God was with Israel. Now, in exactly the same way, regardless, I mean, even if any Christian is frightened of Satan, it's salutary to know, regardless of how frightened you are of Satan and evil spirits, they are terrified of you. For one reason. Because Jesus is with you. 
they know that they haven't got a chance. And rather than having any fear of Satan at all, let's remember this. Satan is terrified of us. He is frightened of you. And he is frightened of me. And the reason he is frightened of you and the reason he is frightened of me is because Jesus is with us. And the moment Jesus starts living through us, Satan knows he's had it. So what he does is he does all the deception tactics. I mean, the Bible talks about him being like a roaring lion. So he roars, and what's he trying to do? Frighten you. Why is he trying to frighten you? Because he's so terrified of you, he knows the only chance he's got is to make us back off. Is he? Because if we back off, he'll win. We won't use our authority. The moment we don't back off and use our authority, Satan knows he's dead. He's dead in the water. So he does everything he can frighten us or try and make us think that the battle's too hard or that we haven't got a chance and he does that because he is terrified of us. Do you remember we saw the uh, story in, um, in, in the Acts of the Apostles when you had the sons of Sceva? Do you remember the sons of the high priest? And uh, they fancied themselves as exorcists. And do you remember they had this bloke who was, uh, you know, like demonised? And it became pretty obvious they were right, you know, that that was obvious demonisation. That was, you know, because, the, you know, the demonia ended up stripping them and beating them all, didn't they? And, um, and you remember, they came against the demons in this man, you know, and, and, and it was in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They seen the Christians casting demons out in the name of Jesus with success. And they had doubtless seen Paul the Apostle cast demons out in the name of Jesus. So they thought they'd have a will, all right? And in they went there and they did it. We command you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. <laughs> all right, and the demons beat them up. But what was it the demons said? They said, Jesus we know, and Paul we know. But who are you? Do you remember? Now the point is, those demons were terrified of Jesus. They were also terrified of Paul, because Paul was following Jesus. Weren't frightened of the sons of Sceva in the slightest, because they weren't Christians. But also, Satan, he knows, and demons only know that they're beaten if we are following Jesus. Can you see what I mean? And it's a good question to ask. Are demons wary of you? Are demons wary of me? If we're lukewarm, half-hearted, they're not going to be wary of us. But if we're following the Lord, the demons are absolutely terrified of us. Just go to James, the letter of James. <clears throat> and... Um, James chapter 2 and verse 19, and just, just one thing that he says. He says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is trembling with fear. You see, the demons are terrified of the Lord. Therefore, they are terrified of any believer who is following the Lord. So then, the point is this. Don't be frightened of demons. They're frightened of you. They're frightened of me, if indeed we're following Jesus. But we certainly must never, ever be frightened of them. They are under our feet. And it's a question of realising that, I mean, when it comes to the Lord, 
Satan and demons are just absolutely nothing. Whether individually or the whole lot of them all at the same time, they are nothing compared to God. Now, you and I, I mean, we know we're dust. We're nothing compared to God, are we? Well, neither are the angels. They're nothing compared to God. Let me just show you something that is really, um, is really good. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And I'm just going to show you the same, the same incident, but told in two Gospels, and you'll, you'll see something that's really quite fascinating. This is Matthew 12 and verse 28. Right, okay, now, Matthew 12, 28, and, and Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And in the Greek, it's by the power of God. The Greek word there is dunamis. If I, by the power of God, cast out demons, all right? Now then, go to uh, Luke 11. Luke 11, and in verse 20, Luke 11, verse 20, and Jesus says this, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the, king then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now in Matthew, Jesus said, If I by the power of God, and here he says, If I by the finger of God, now what does this tell us? It tells us that there's enough power in God's little finger to defeat Satan and the principalities and powers in their entirety. Now, think of it like this. When it's a question of God versus Satan, do you know what it takes on God's part to deal with Satan? It takes a flick of the finger. Many Christians have the funny idea that Satan is the opposite of God. No way! No way! So, let's picture, all right, there, all right, there's a demon, all right, sitting there on my Bible. Here's, here's the finger of God. What does God do to deal with Satan and all the principalities and powers and demons in their entirety? He does this. <laughs> I mean, think of a matchbox, and I flick a matchbox with my finger. What happens? It flies across the room. There's enough power in God's little finger to deal with the satanic realm in its entirety. And you and I are one with God. That is the power that we have working in our own lives. Just go to Acts. Coming right to the end now. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. And this is the early church preaching about Jesus, and um, it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and when it came to the devil, all Jesus needed was his, his little finger, a flick of the finger, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now that is our mission. What Jesus was doing here, going about doing good 
and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. That is the mission of us as a church. Jesus has passed that commission on to us. As the Father sent me, he said in John, even so send I you. And because God is with us. Jesus is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. The Trinity lives inside of us. And as he leads us, then our job is to go about doing good, healing all who are oppressed by the power of the devil. We'll end on one scripture, last scripture from Luke chapter 10. And I want to lead here, uh, end here, because it's, it's easy with things like this. It's, it's exciting and that's good. But uh, one of the things we've seen, especially with all the false teaching that's around, is how easy it is uh, for Christians to get carried away. And um, so this is, these are the verses that we need to look at now. Luke 10 and, and verse 17, all right? The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And we need to make sure that when it comes to anything to do with Satan and evil spirits and principalities and powers, that we don't put too much emphasis on that. That we rejoice not so much in our victory over Satan, but that we rejoice that our names are written in heaven. That the focus of our attention is Jesus and not all the time Satan and evil spirits. We must make sure that we don't get carried away. We've got to keep our eyes on the Lord, we've got to stay in balance, and we need to move with a massive dose of what I just call biblical common sense. And you'll find, sadly, that many, many Christians if you were to really get to know them, particularly the ones in the charismatic movement who are filled with the Spirit, you will find that they talk more about the devil than they do about the Lord. That their attention is more on what Satan is doing than what God is doing. Now that is an error to say the very least. And I want to end on a quote uh, that Blinda found in a book a few weeks ago. She says, well, bung this down and finish the series off with it. And I think it's absolutely right. And it's simply this. Think of the devil and the devil is there. Think of God and he is there. Who are you thinking of most of the time? And on that bit of advice, <laughs> we'll end the demonology series. Lovely, lovely. Thank you very much.